Good morning, everyone. I am Laurel McCarg, host of Alligator Preserves, and I have with me again today, Kathy Taylor. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Now, Kathy, two years ago, it was two years ago, and by the way, by, by the way, Happy Winter Solstice Day, the shortest day of the year. Yay! The same to you. Yes. <laughs> Yay! It'll, the days it'll will get, get longer from now on. Yeah, I am so happy. <laughs> Two years ago, I interviewed you on your book, Trees and Other Witnesses, a book I absolutely, totally adored. Everybody go out and buy it right now. Who are you today? And and after you answer this, of course, I'm going to go back and listen to my interview that I did two years ago and see who you were two years ago. <laughs> tell our tell our audience who you are today. Who I am today? Wow. Um, <laughs> I think that's partly what my book's about. But uh, um, you know, I think I am a different person to the extent that I did something I never thought I would do. I never planned to write a novel. Never never thought I would didn't know how. Um, and I just um, kind of fell organically into the experience. In fact, it was kind of your fault because <laughs> you were the one who said, when I told you about this, I told you said you should write a novel. And I said, uh, well, I never done that. I wouldn't know how. And then I said, I had an idea once 20 some years ago. And I told you about the idea. And you said, that sounds like a great idea. Just do it. And I'm like, no, but the time's passed and no, just do it. And so I bought this wonderful journal and started making, you know, writing down notes and thought just ideas. And I thought, how will I ever pull that together? And um, I finally, one day just sat down, wrote on my journal, February 7th, I'm starting writing and didn't stop from there. It just wrote itself to inside me like a birth, like a pregnancy. <laughs> so, so so you're a different person than you were a couple of years ago. So we're talking today about your novel, The Birthing House. Now, let me just say, this is so multi-layered, <laughs> complex, filled with musings about language, words, Dreams, time, history, trees. You mentioned trees in here too, oh, which I love. You do you do love trees, yes? I, I seem to, yes. <laughs> yes, I do too. Who can't love a tree? Yeah, really. How would you characterize the genre of this work? Because again, multi-multi-layered. That is the question. I have been asked that. What's your book about? And you know, I of course had to come up with what they what do they call it? The elevator. The elevator know. pitch. Pitch. Yeah. The elevator pitch. Um, it took me a while. Um, you know, I think of it as literary fiction, women's fiction, multicultural fiction, historical fiction. Um, I think the, the line that I came up with is this is a book of literary fiction about writing memory and belonging. Um, 
it's about a lot of other things. Then, you know, I continue there with, you know, themes of, of various things underneath. Um, but it is very much about writing. And, um, and I tried to keep, so, so the, the, the protagonist is a writer and writes her way out twice out of grief and loss. Um, and she meets many, many other characters who have, are, have come out of grief or violence or loss of themselves, their homeland, immigrants, refugees. Um, but also the protagonist is, is kind of writing her way back into herself. And I tried to be really authentic to the times. So 1980, it, it has two alternating timelines, 20 years apart. So 1980 and 2000 are quite different in the world of writing, in the literary world. Yes. Um, I was a professor of literature, among other things, and, and taught many Latin American novels, um, uh, a great variety, some of which were kind of like classic traditional novels, and some were very experimental. experimental. But the 1990s, and into the early 2000s was a period of um, exploration and experimentation with the postmodern novel. Um, and so as a writer, this protagonist is both a professor of language and literature, um, but also a very emotional, deeply sort of questioning person. And so she writes all different kinds of writing and writes herself from the deeply personal, emotional, in her journal, sort of unconscious, subconscious, into um, emails and letters and musings and conversations with her husband um, and her newfound friends. Um, but she's a professor on sabbatical, so she's supposed to be writing an academic book. Yeah. And she's not sure what it's going to be, but she's always been interested in how do you write fiction and what is fiction? What makes fiction different than history or nonfiction? Um, and just like all genres in, in, in fiction, in writing, people think there's a clear category. And part of my, what my book is about is challenging those boxes, those clear categories, whether it's your own identity, you know, nationality, language, gender identity, race, um, whether it's you know, writing is this or that. And as a woman academic intellectual, who's also a very emotional kind of spiritual person, um, it's not an easy road. And so she, um, she's just constantly sort of exploring and, and crossing those boundaries. Um, so during her this whole trajectory of the book that has so these two parallel timelines in the first one she, after a miscarriage she gets pregnant again and it's pregnancy and going towards birth which is the you think it's the final goal it's actually just the beginning right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um and then in the second timeline she's trying to write this book that uh and like many women writers throughout history um Right, the writing of a book is less about um, setting up structures, and it's within a certain category. If it's academic, it has to be this; it has to be that. Um, and it's it's not something completely separate from her life or real life or 
it's something that grows out of her and happens to her. Um, so anyway, that's what makes a lot of the complex layers. And, um, and you know, I, I, I've also alternated between thinking it's really a niche genre, you know, that will only appeal to certain kinds of people. Um, and I've been finding that that's actually not quite true. It's see, of the different readers I've had, the responses, some respond to one thing, some to another. I didn't like that so much. That got in my way, but I love this. Um, I got frustrated when you interrupted talk about babies and it was all warm and fuzzy. And then you talk about something philosophical and um, and other people's, oh, I love the philosophical part. I've never had a baby, so I wasn't quite so you know into that. Um, and some of the most thoughtful reviews I've gotten were from men, because I think of this as in many ways as women's fiction, but right. I think it's I think it's kind of questioning all of that. <laughs> it it questions everything. And it's funny that it's it's funny that you should bring up um the idea of the the professor and the fact that you have taught other yes. novels. And because it dawned on me this morning, I was thinking about some other questions to ask you. <clears throat> as I want to do. And, and I thought, you know what, this, the birthing house would be a college level course that someone smart enough could teach because again, there's so much in there. So let me ask you this. It, mm -hmm. it goes back and forth between two different timelines, a miscarriage and then 20 years later, the death of a father. This has actually happened to you. Why did you not write this as a memoir? That is a good question. Um, and it's funny because I, I, I'll just preface this by saying I just recently got a reaction, a response from someone who said, oh, this, this book is so deeply personal. Um, and it's somebody who knows my son. And I loved, you know, getting to know your mother more and and her and and your and you. And I was taken aback at first. Um, would love to have a conversation with her and say, you know, this really is fiction. Um like all writing, I took much of it from my own experience. Um, but I would say more than half of the book is completely imagined. Um, and one of the things that literary fiction does that, that likes to do is privilege character over plot-driven structure. So instead of it propelling you along through the story, it sends you deep. And the fact that I have so much detail about this protagonist, um, Claire, and it seems to, Claire, yes, and it seems to be convincing. People think, oh, they they've told me people who know me, oh yes, I saw you so much in that book, and it's so you. I'm like, actually, no, Claire, I made her intentionally not like me, and so in many ways, of course, her 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 soul is is me or like me, but she's very different. She looks different. She. She, her I, her personality is a little more like my husband's and Stefan Claire's husband is as my husband says um not at all like me he's he's <sighs> perfect he's much nicer than I am <laughs> <laughs> and you know so it's the weird thing about writing fiction that you can take true things about yourself and about life um and make it anything that you want. And um, so some of the characters are based on real people. My my son, my daughter, my husband, um, friends that we made in Germany living there. 
But some of the most important characters, um, like Johann, this older German man, is completely made up. He was wonderful. Samara was completely made up. Um, The whole second timeline was completely made up. Um, I told dear friend, German friends who are um, the basis of of a couple of characters in the book, Jürgen and Christina, um, that, you know, we got to have another year of friendship together. I, Mm -hmm. I just imagined if we had had that second year, you know, uh, so, so there's a reality underneath it that's very strong, but it's completely freed from, uh, like Willie did not, I mean, my son did not do all the things that Willie did. <sighs> and yet they're kind of authentic to that experience. So if I'd done a memoir, it would have been a completely different book. I did not write the book that Claire writes, um, which is why I just have pieces of her thinking, you know, the, the, the things that, um, that come to her mind fragments that she sort of started with, but you don't ever get to see what the book is. Um, right, right. There are, there are notes for the book. Yeah. In they're just your notes. book, And they're right. fragments. And mm-hmm. um, some people will say, Oh, that's too intellectual. That's, you know, I don't want to deal with that, which is fine because what they're meant to do is just show what's happening in Claire's mind and inner self and how this book is growing for her. Um, kind just, of just dating, yeah, yeah, just dating. That's the good word for it. Just dating in her as she heals from her grief. Her grief was filled her so much with a, this emptiness, this emptiness that fills kind of like a balloon. Um, that she couldn't write at first, except in her journal. And as the grief begins to fade, um, just as the loss of the miscarriage begins to fade in the face of a new pregnancy her loss of her father um, recedes, I would say, if not fades, um, as this new life grows within her. And there are even a couple of times when she's writing, she says, I felt a quickening. I felt new life. Um, so, so the notes for book, that's one example. Some people will just say, you know, oh, you know, I, I, I see what they're for, but I don't have to dive in and take that. I don't have to process it. Some other people told me, oh, I just love that. I got lost in that. And then, you know, we then you went back to babies. <laughs> yeah. And her, her journal entries, she's writing, at least at the beginning, well, I think pretty much all the way through, she's writing to Hannah. She's writing to the owner of the yes. the birth the birthing hall house where yes. she is, which I, I thought that was an interesting decision to make. You know, a lot of times in a journal, you you just write what you mm-hmm. want to write and it's like you're writing right. your own thoughts you're not specifically maybe writing to a person right. but but that writing was almost meant to be read um yes yeah yes, so, so that was right. beautiful we we get to know hannah the owner mm-hmm. of the house who doesn't appear till you know at the end and yes. and so that's another layer of the story yes. so you mentioned claire's husband stefan mm-hmm. loosely based on your own husband and he's doing research. He's doing yes. historical research. And in his research, he uncovers parish a parish register from the yes. early 1800, 1800s, I think. Yeah. Well, 1700s, 18th century. So, 18th century, yeah. And there was a line in there I thought was fascinating that, that Claire says, she says, people's attitudes toward death, or maybe it was... Stefan that said it, people's attitudes toward death reveal so much about their lives. Mm-hmm. 
What's your attitude toward death? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, well, let me uh, insert something here as I as I answer your question. Um, my father did die, but he was ninety when he died, and was much later in my life. So that loss um, was a a projection of how it might have been for me if he died much younger. You know, at my current age, maybe seventy something. You know, uh, and suddenly it was not. I did not have that experience, but I was so close to my father that. His death, even at 90, when it was a blessing, really, was just unimaginable. It was just so hard to, to process that, even though if someone dies of old age, um, it's, it is a process, not a sudden. Um, so, um, and my, I think one of the things I loved about creating the character Claire is looking at that complexity of loss and grief and the stages of it. And um, the poem in there that I called Grief um, is a poem I wrote after my dad died. Um, and um, I just think it's it's one of those things like life and, you know, um, whatever religious or spiritual um faith and values you have um, or don't have, or um, they're so incomprehensible that the only way to really deal with it is poetry. Uh, and I don't mean literally writing poems necessarily, but but the way poetry works, where it juxtaposes things that don't always, don't necessarily go together as a way of expressing kind of in fragments the the impossibility of naming exactly, like narrative tries to sort of tell a story um which whether it's true or not there there's my interest in history fiction um mm -hmm. the truth of it is is less important than the way it is told that um creates a story that um can be a truth you know that 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 tells us how it is whereas poetry tries to reach that place where there is no way to explain or even narrate really um but i think one of the things that happened to me with the loss of my own father and happens to claire like the dreams she writes about some of those are are real experiences for me um where at first the loss is so extreme that there was a blank i i'm someone who dreams really deeply and intensely as claire does yeah, you too. Me too. Um, and so after my dad died, um, I was really upset. It doubled the grief that he did not appear in my dreams. How is that possible? You know, I dream about everything. Um, and how come this most important thing? It was several months. And um, that's when I wrote that poem about grief, where it was this kind of crisis of uh, uh, that was the opposite of a pregnancy you know it starts out but it talks about um a loss that is like a birth but then refilling with this pregnant in pregnancy that it protrudes only inwards so this that sense of becoming filled up with nothing filled up with grief um and only as time went by a few months later he started to appear in my dreams and the first 
dream that appears in this book was where um, Claire and her mother and sister, and in, in, in my dream, it was my mother and sister with me, showed up at this community where I grew up in Pennsylvania. And we went into the dining room and there was my father sitting there at a table, just chatting away with people and just in his great, in his element. Yeah. And the three of us stood there with our mouths open in shock. Yeah. You're supposed to be dead, you know? And he, and we, we were crying and he, he was so involved in his conversation. And then he turned and looked over and said, what? I may be dead, but I'm not deceased. And <laughs> that was my father's first visit <laughs> after his death. And so I, for a year, I wrote a journal of dreams about my father. And it was this wonderful story of its own, of him coming back in different ways with his wonderful wry sense of humor. And, and then, you know, then sometimes he was an old man, sometimes he was my young father. And um, so that is almost like a novel in itself, how we move from the emptiness of loss to being refilled with and i don't know if people in the in the early 18th century had the luxury of even stopping to contemplate death much because they were just struggling so hard to survive yeah. um but um my husband peter who did this actual research was really taken with this pastor who for almost 50 years wrote in his book his his you know he it was his job to document all of this and how his approach to death changed early on. It was all very Christian, how they died. They died, you know, with God, died um, peacefully, died. Mm -hmm. And then later he started to, um, I think maybe his second wife was the daughter of a doctor or something. Anyway, it, he, he began to medicalize it. Mm -hmm. Also why they died, that it wasn't just God saying, okay, your time's hey, up. Your time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I'd like to just respond to one other thing you said about um, Hannah, about the owner of the house. Mm -hmm. That was based on a real experience. We did, we did live in this house that had been owned by a midwife. It's not that house. I, not I had to protect. The woman is eighty-six years old now, and I had to protect her privacy. But, uh, but it is, it is a real. There is a real place, and. Just by accident, we stayed there as Claire and Stefan do because the apartment they were going to rent fell through. And so um, these friends of ours knew this woman who was going off for a few months and asked the woman, hey, would you like to rent this to some friends of ours? And she was like, oh, my God, I hadn't thought about that, but I, I, I can't do, change anything. I have to leave. And so it was this most wonderful experience of getting to know this house and the personality it had. Yeah. So I started writing in a little journal in German because I wanted to just like revive my German yeah. and found myself addressing the owner of the house whom I'd never met. Huh. Her real name was Helena, but um, <laughs> so I just wrote to her in um, German and never thought, never thinking I would meet her or give it to her, but I just, cause the house was so much her. So yeah. I kept saying, you know, you're this and you're that. And um, then she decided to come back early so she could meet us. She actually called a couple of times. And so she did. And, you know, she I, she knocked on the door. I opened the door and we just 
hugged each other like old friends. And, yeah. um, yeah, but we were, we only were there for like six weeks or something or, you know, it wasn't very long. Right. right. That gave right. me the idea. No, I, I mean, it's great. So you have many stories within stories, within stories, you have stories <laughs> of other women mm-hmm. from different challenging backgrounds. Yeah. Also here with Claire in, in Marburg. Why did you include their stories? Well, some of them were based on people that I knew. Um, I mean, people, friends of our, real friends of ours mm-hmm. who had been, were, you know, had left Poland during an awful time or um, who grew up in the Sudetenland, which was part of Germany, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and and just really difficult paths, past, you know, so they were exiled or chose to to leave, but were leaving behind a homeland. Um, in, in, in the case of the Polish couple, they were going to the country of one of their enemies. Poland was alter, you know, alternately taken over by Germany, by Soviet Union, by, you know, by Russia, the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, um, I did, we did know an Israeli couple of Israeli Jews who left Israel to go to Germany, if you mm-hmm. can imagine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because they actually felt more at home in Germany. Um, a lot of ironies there in terms of identity and who you feel you are and who you become because of political, national changes or because of wars. And um, I did completely imagine Samira, the Somali woman in the story, mm-hmm. But in part because there were many Somali immigrants to Germany, when we were there in the early 80s, <clears throat> it was mostly Turks that you saw um, because they had a guest worker program, much like the United States did in the 50s and 60s of inviting immigrants in to do work that needed to be done. Um, and Johan um that's a very funny story about writing because I was just thinking I need to have some old person who was born in the house to help move that story along. And so I had Claire out walking. Or she was already out walking and I thought yeah. probably be an old woman. And I was with Claire walking in the park and it was, a, there was an old man with a dog. I, I did not plan him. He just walked, walked into the book. And that story just unfolded. Beautifully. Thank you. It just unfolded. I didn't plan it. I didn't know who he was going to be. Um, My husband was helpful with, oh, you know, with the historical stuff. You know, you really can't say this. You'd have to say this at that time. Or, um, and I wanted there to be a Jewish connection um, that he wasn't ashamed of, but had to hide in order to protect himself. If you had one Jewish grandparent, it made you a Jew during the Nazi time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't want to give away too much, but anyway, um, yeah. So some things just, you know, like the, the violin, the violin did in your <laughs> vision when he appeared to you, did he have a violin? That um, n- not when he first appeared, but he brought it one day and I, I did not have that as a plan. Although, you know, that I, I am a musician and music is mm-hmm. pretty close to the ultimate spiritual <laughs> Um something experience and so um yeah music, that, that mu- was, music music and poetry yeah i mean that was accidental too but um no, it was i couldn't deny it 
Johan appeared with his personality and that was that. Yeah, and, and he's wonderful. I'm going to, I'm going to read something here. Okay. Um, Isra's story. Yes. Is, is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just read this. Okay. November 15th. I think we are all migrants in search of a meaningful life as we flee the prisons that confine us. It's about freedom and belonging. We look for webs of connection that bind us to ourselves. We are not just one thing or the simple negation of something else. So the idea of all of us being migrants on this journey, you have traveled far and wide in your own life. Do you still feel like a migrant? (laughs) That's interesting. Um, In many ways, um, I do. Yeah. There are things about where I live now and about living in this country, in this world that, that seem foreign to me, that seem sort of inexplicable. um, And yet they're very much part of who I am. I have fallen in love with other languages and countries that have become so much a part of me. Um, my husband jokes that they're my lovers, my outside, you know, um, that I um, I don't just come back home and be go back to the, to the self that I was. They, they, even even if I don't go back to those countries physically, um, they have those experiences have changed me. Um, now, I'm very privileged in that I wasn't fleeing anything. Um, I wasn't forced to do this. I wasn't for. I haven't been forced to give up a huge part of my identity. Um, but I willingly embrace other identities. I take in the minute you go and spend time in another country. Um, as my seven-year-old daughter said when we first spent time in Mexico. And she was this little blonde girl in a Mexican school, all in Spanish. She said, um, everybody should be a foreigner sometime. Um, (laughs) And I think everybody should be a foreigner sometime. And, you know, it does. That being a foreigner, um, at first, when it's a shock, when everything seems foreign to you, but you are actually the foreigner, is profound. But what's even more profound is when you become so a part of that culture and language is a big part of that. um, And you find that you, the culture becomes not foreign to you. It becomes part of who you are and familiar. Then um, there's a strangeness to that. Well, then who am I? I, When I spent time in, in Curacao, for instance, where there are many, it's a very, very complex, multiracial, multicultural place. But there's a, a lot of people are black or dark. or, And every once in a while, I would look at my own skin and go, or look in the mirror and go, whoa, I'm white. <laughs> um, this, this, this idea segues, and I think you're probably answering the next question that I have. Because Claire is fascinated by how she was a different person in each language a different mm-hmm. person in each language mm-hmm. so so i was going to ask you to elaborate but it sounds like you already are so well uh, i can give you an example um for some reason in english i speak very low in my range when i sing i'm 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 higher um 
And so I've developed kind of even a hoarseness in that low voice. Pero cuando hablo español, hablo más alto. <laughs> when I speak Spanish, my voice is higher. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a professor and a teacher of Spanish, so I had to project not only volume, but energy and, you know, the culture of mm-hmm. much of the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, there's a culture that is related to the language that has a kind of passion and intensity, um, a kind of um, purity of sound. The vowels are are more uh, open and pure. In English, we tend to have things go in the back of our throat. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, it, it, it kind of changed my personality. Um, and also just the way Spanish is formed. I mean, the way... Um, it has some difficult grammatical issues, but much of it seems is very fluid. And German is is building blocks. Um, I have questions at the end of the novel for book clubs, you know, the kind of discussion questions. And one of them is, what is the symbolic significance of um, Willie's Legos? <laughs> and there's there's a lot, you know. You can answer that question right now. <laughs> I don't want to say too much, but as he learns to speak word by word, and he's playing with Legos with a friend, mm-hmm. neither they know, don't speak each other's language. Um, but the sort of building block structure of German, where where words are descriptive, and so they put together these these chunks of things to make meaning. Um, it makes it seem clumsy and intimidating to people when they're not used to it. But when you're used to it. As happens with Claire, you know, she doesn't know what Kopfrechnen means. She, she has to think Kopf is head and Rechnen is to um, to account, to count. Um, and so Kopfrechnen is doing um, arithmetic problems in your head. Um, so there's a kind of philosophical um, aspect to German. And people who don't know it very well also think of it as harsh and, you know, there's all these stereotypes from movies of World War II, and um, and it's not at all. It has a has a warmth and a tenderness to it, and a creative creativity. And so I, I have Claire say, you know, I think I'm finding my my German personality now. I'm feeling sort of maternal and tender instead of passionate and free. And ah, so uh, it's that part is fascinating too. And again. You know, you've you've got a lot of Spanish and German words in here. And of course, you always translate after. And at at first, as a reader, I tend to stumble a little bit and I might skip over. But then then I got curious because some of the words that were repeated, I started to feel familiar with them. And Mm -hmm. I started, I felt like I started to learn German, which was kind of cool. I I have a German friend. And I have a yeah. son who's learning yeah. German and, and he absolutely loves it. So um, that that was a surprise that I certainly didn't expect from <laughs> myself reading it. That's wonderful. So, yeah. and some people so, really, re- some people resent, um, actually most people resent being f- sort of feeling forced to learn something. Um, and I, of course, I you can always, you can always skip over it if you don't. That's know. my, that's my feeling. I did not yeah. start to say, I'm going to make you learn this or <laughs> at all. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a seasoning. It's a reminder that this yeah. is happening in German. And early on, you know, the reader sees things that they don't understand. Well, Claire doesn't, and Willie certainly doesn't understand it either. It's sort of the reality of being in another culture. 
The readers are learning them. along with the characters I want the who are learning. To experience that stuff <laughs> coming at you that you don't understand. Yeah, and the novel helps you. But I didn't want to just translate everything, and right. I, I wanted to create that experience, which you can completely skip over and just go, "Oh, that's German, German, German," you know, whatever. Or you can get caught and look at it and go, "Huh." But I think I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things in this novel that I think, you know, there's a variety, sort of a menu of things that you can, you know, yeah, I'd like this, this, and this, and this for dessert, but no, not that, no, not so much of that. But it's there to show you that life is complex, not a simple narrative. Right. No, Things it's, step around in time and place. Yeah. You know, you go from tender and 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 romantic to um, hard and challenging and, you know, something with your computer. And I mean, it's just full of that. Um, and we don't take in and process everything. Um, yeah. Can't. Yeah. Uh, but, I'm. I'm reminded when you were talking about Spanish and the higher register and and music, right? I mean, music it it emotes. Yeah. I mean, we music makes me want to dance, want to <laughs> march, want right. to sing along, want to cry. So yeah, I can I can see how different languages would change your personality because we're emotional. They have their own people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. So the idea of gestation in this story, the book that she's writing within the book that you're writing, um, there are notes for uh, for the book throughout and this history and this pondering. And I want to I want to read this note for a book. Why do we write? Is it to document, explore, educate? To vent, understand, analyze, entertain? How does our writing begin? What will we call it? Can we really know when we start what it will be when it's finished? Why did you write the book? Why did you why did you have to add the additional challenge of writing a book within a book? <laughs> well, um my initial idea for the book years ago, um, you know, when I found out <clears throat> that the house we were staying in had been a birthing house and the woman that when the owner came back and told me that she had, she didn't know that, but she had met a man who came along the street and said, oh, I was born in that house. And she learned about it. Um, I thought, wow, that would make a great novel, this house that has this history. Um, and I thought, at that time, I didn't go very far with it because I was swept back into life and work and kids and all that. Um, but I had thought, well, how, you know, okay, how would I write about it? Would I would I do a anthropological, you know, try to interview people and put this whole thing together about the history of this house? Or would I make it fiction? And so then it would have to be about someone learning this. <clears throat> and so I thought it should be a protagonist who an American who's coming to Germany for some reason. So why, what, what is driving her? And I thought, well, maybe she just had a divorce. You know, there are lots of movies about, mm -hmm. you know, that or some big thing in their life. And, and yeah. you go to some other, you go away to some other place to try to find yourself and mm -hmm. um, could be a romance. It could be, um, 
But I was already back then and even way before interested in writing. I, I even I gave a Spanish senior seminar a couple of times called Writing About Writing. And we read novels that involved writers. And those have become, many have become movies that are wonderful too, right? The, the, it's the writer's crisis of writing or, or trying to find himself or herself by trying to write this some a book, but can't figure out what to write. And so that metaphor of, of writing, you know, and trying to, is, is a metaphor of life. Like, who am I? And what do I have to say? And what am I trying to do? And so, uh, as Claire says in the very beginning of the book, um, we're all writers, even those of us who don't claim to be. In fact, could I read that just little, that little? Sure. And and while you're finding right that, you mentioned metaphor. And I, I recall somewhere in there, you, obviously, you love wordplay and you have <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. What's a metaphor? <laughs> yeah. 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 We have a lot of play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, this is in the very beginning, but um, okay. where she's giving a talk to um, to a, a crowd, that, which the, and this beginning starts some years after she's written the book. It's kind of a, it's like a preface, but or a, um, what do you call it? Prelude, I guess. She says um, uh, she's she's going to talk all about her novel and decides that no, I don't really want to do that. I'm tired of doing that. She's because she's been touring around. She says. Um, so thank you for reading my, my book. You can draw your own conclusions about it. Today, I just want to pose a few questions. Why do we write? How do we write? What do we write about? We are all writers, you know. The words were coming faster than her thoughts. Not just those of us who claim to be, but every one of us. Each moment of our existence, um, so each moment of our existence is an intersection of stories that inhabit us and connect us. As the present constantly unravels, we weave a future out of the threads of our past, inventing a narrative to make sense of things. We spend our whole lives rewriting that narrative so it can hold the complexity of who we become. So in part, I wanted to just show the process of being a writer. Um, but also, this is a writer who's interested in writing. So not only does she write fiction and but she has written uh as i have written about literature about how mm -hmm. it's written and how we experience it and um one of um some of the intellectual stuff i took from my my first book which was my dissertation and became a book um and it was about um it's called the new narrative of mexico subversions of history in latin american or in mexican fiction and it was about how Way back, you know, early on, um, most I thought I turned the, the dings off of my um, don't worry about it. Well, early on, um, most writing about real stuff was done in verse, epic poetry is, mm -hmm. and that was because um the bards and the troubadours and um had to be able to memorize stuff and they would travel mm -hmm. from village to village, and so they had it in verse and often to music, um, and often in rhyme. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was sort of the real stuff. And then they started writing these um, chivalric novels and sort of uh, um, stories, fiction, uh, um, in narrative form. Um, but then it kind of switched. The early uh, chroniclers wrote in narrative form. Um, and 
then poetry became, you know, something other than reporting. And, you know, it's a complex history, but um, we just assume usually that the writing of history is analytic and, you know, and, and the truth and based on research and based on foundations of stuff and fiction is just made up and it's really not that simple. No, no, nothing is that simple. No, nothing's that simple. And the other thing I wanted to do, I don't, didn't know this in the beginning, but I re- began to realize it is to show that many female intellectuals write differently than the traditional intellectuals who were mostly male um, and refuse to accept that the brain and the intellectual is this box that's completely separate from the emotional, the physical, the, you know, women uh, uh, bear children. And um, that just isn't something you can put in a separate room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the room's inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens to Claire. She's she's determined to, to read all these German philosophers that, you know, give you a headache and, um, <laughs> but also learn something from them. And she's genuinely, and, and, she and her husband have a great relationship of throwing ideas around over their coffee yeah. break and sharing what, what they're sharing, you know, and exploring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when, um, and I won't, I won't, I don't want to give away the end, but she comes to a different place w- with the book and is inspired by this house that she's living in. And so, um, yeah. And, and so, and so, <laughs> It's what, complicated. what completely different question? What is your favorite genre to read? Um, you know, I loved reading books like mine, novels that are complicated and uh, a lot of Latin American novels. You know, there's magical realism involved in a lot of them and yet a lot of history. Um, they have some of my favorite ones. One of the, my favorite ones to teach was when I actually have Claire reading in the book at one point. By a Puerto Rican author, but ones that have, you know, a sort of a symbolic structure involved, and and you know, as you get as you read through, there's just lots to to work with, and they're they're really fun to teach, and students are often overwhelmed at first, and and then they really get into it, like a really good mystery, you know, you dig in deep and you find more and more, and and it makes you feel like you it's changed you. Um, but I've also found, uh, particularly since moving here and writing and being, being part of the, the, uh, central Colorado, um, writers. <laughs> yeah, writers exchange and, um, and others, um, and I read books by friends of mine, by writers or just writers that I've met, um, and find myself really opening up to genres that I don't think I particularly go for, um. I think it's, um, I personally think it's important to read outside your comfort zone. I mean, this was, yeah. this was outside my comfort zone. <laughs> you got significant discomfort. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I do. And, and also to just sort of, it, it's so instructive as, as a writer to see what other people are doing and, and what a particular genre, you know, demands. There's a certain formula. Um, and yet, within that there's infinite creativity you know some people some people really just you know trash um romance novels oh they're just all the same they have the same formula um well yes but how you fill that um you know somebody like Nora Roberts who you know 
there's just the inevitable sexual tension and the hot sex scenes and all that stuff. But she researches deeply each context within that structure. And so, um, you know, I've come to respect and appreciate how that works or thrillers or mysteries. I used to be a little it, They can just be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I used to be a little annoyed at being manipulated through that, that formula that I know I, I'm familiar with. And I'm just like, okay, here we go. Yep. There it is. Um, <laughs> but when you let go of that and immerse yourself, allow yourself like, like it's when you watch a movie, allow yourself to be manipulated. That's what writing's about and carried along. And um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I read, you know, Cam Torrens novels, for instance, um, that, you know, they're very much the thriller genre, but he's very playful with it, um, particularly the second novel. And I found myself just really, really loving it um, mm-hmm. and finding more to it and and appreciating that structure. And, uh, in, and interestingly enough, he was one of the people who most got my novel, which I did not expect. So you can't you can't predict. Some people choose a genre they like to write, but that doesn't mean that's all they understand at all. Right. right. Um, shout shout out to Cam Torrens, yes, uh, yeah. author of the the novel you're talking about, False Summit. Right. Yes. Yeah. False Summit. Yeah. And um, fun reading as well. Yeah. 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 And um, I think the other thing I wanted to say is when I I taught creative writing for a long time, it was always in Spanish, <clears throat> and I found that. Students flourished the most when you gave them, uh, when you gave them a box. You know, um, if, if people, you know, writers block is when you have this blank page of infinite possibility. We're like, what do I do with it? Yeah. But when you say, you know, you have to write a poem using these three words, and you know, you've done all that that flash fiction right. kind of stuff. Yeah, those limitations actually stir up more creativity than yes, an open thing and. So uh, I did all kinds of, you know, prompts and tricks like that with them. And they surprised themselves. Um, yes. Even like having them do, uh, write a poem in response based on a poem by a famous writer. I would use that as a teaching tool. We'd study the poem deeply. And then, and they would go, well, I, how can I imitate that without, do it, without doing it? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's totally intimidating. What, how can you write a poem inspired by a great poet mm-hmm. and not just sort copy of or copy plagiarize or plagiarize or <laughs> um and so they were always freaked out and they always did amazing things oh. by just letting go and so um yeah this whole my whole book is about you know challenging boxes but sometimes boxes are really helpful i agree so i also yeah. know that the audiobook for the birthing mm-hmm. house will be coming out. Do you know when? That's the question I keep asking. Um, it is progressing really well um, because mm-hmm. of the complex cast of characters um, the, and the books. You know, it's it's not extremely long, but it's it's substantial. The um, people I'm working with decided they needed to have two narrators. Okay. So there's a woman who narr- does all the narrating and the female characters, and a man who does all the male characters. Um, so, so sometime the male in. Sometime um, in 2024. You know, it's I, I just got chapters 10 and 11 the other day, and I so and they're 16. So we're we're then it has to be compiled. It's right. it's pretty elaborate, pretty complex. So I don't. Right. I really don't know. I hope is, in the next couple is, months. No, 
nice. All right. For a, a spring, a spring break, listen, perhaps. <laughs> so what's next, Kathy? The the book about all the dreams your your father has visited you in? <laughs> my husband says dreams we should of, write a dreams of my father. <laughs> yeah, right. My husband says I should write a novel about not about trying to get it published, but trying to but about marketing. And I was like, no. <laughs> no. Go there. no, that's, that's not that's been done. That's, been, that's done. been done and it's not but, fun. But, but what is um, ne- what is next? I don't know. I never know. I, know. Um, right. I mean, I occasionally I write a poem that um that happens. I don't usually plan. Um there is there are things that sort of percolate, but I just have to wait for it to to find me, I think. I don't I don't have any specific writing plan at the moment. All right. Maybe we need to have coffee again. Yes. Like, oh, yes. Nudge you, nudge you towards something else. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I do appreciate the nudge. <laughs> and uh, Kathy, how do readers find you? Where do you want them to go to learn more about you and your work? Um, well, one easy way: I have a um, a website that actually is not mine. It's about me. It was created for me, which is a little unsettling in some ways. But it's called <laughs> Catalina Writes. C A T A L I, like Catalina Writes, uh-huh. one dot com. Yeah. It's the easiest. Um, I, I will have links and photos because you will maybe send me some more photos. And yeah. I will have links yeah. and photos to this. And there'll be an audio version of this as well that I'll put up on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. Anyway. Um, Kathy, this has been a pleasure. I have learned a lot. even after reading this book and just talking with you today. And I hope our listeners have learned a few things too, and will not be intimidated by (laughs) what we have said today about this multi-layered novel. You don't have to eat everything on your plate. (laughs) (laughs) Eat every last bean and pea on your plate. Brussels sprouts. That's what I didn't want. (laughs) I don't want to pee on my plate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. (laughs) <laughs> Kathy, enjoy this uh, last lo- uh, shortest day of the year. Yes, thank and, you. Uh, and, and, and Laura, I want to say thank you. Uh, as I said before, in the first interview, you are such an amazing, generous resource. Ah. And I I just I enjoy talking to you, even when your questions are tough. Well, especially when your questions are tough, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's wonderful. And I, I'm very grateful for all you do. Well, I am grateful for what you do too and our growing friendship friendship and yeah. Let's keep going. All right. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks everybody. Happy holidays. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at Amazon.com.